Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. In our last episode, we presented the conclusion of the defense team's case. In this episode, we begin our exploration of the closing statements in the trial. We will begin that presentation right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With the prosecution team declining their opportunity to present rebuttal witnesses, Judge Timothy Walmsley invites the prosecution and attorneys for each of the three defendants to present their closing arguments. The lineup of these arguments is as follows. Linda Dunikowski delivers the closing for the prosecution. Jason Sheffield closes on behalf of Travis McMichael. Laura Hogue does so on behalf of Greg McMichael. And Kevin Goff offers the closing argument for William Roddy Bryan. Then the prosecution, having the burden to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, is afforded a rebuttal argument. We begin with Prosecutor Dunikowski's closing. As she rises to speak to the jury, Dunikowski reminds the jurors of their respective roles and responsibilities. Thank you, Your Honor. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Linda Donikoski. I, along with Larissa Olivier and Paul Camarillo, represent the people of the state of Georgia and the citizens of Glenn County. Today, you are Glenn County. Donikoski then returns to the core theme of her opening statement to this jury. This, this case is really about assumptions and driveway decisions. Now, you heard the defense talk about, well, probable cause. You're going to have to distinguish between assumptions based on gossip and rumor and all this neighborhood talk on Facebook and actual probable cause to believe a crime had been committed and someone had committed that crime. The state's position is all three of these defendants made assumptions, made assumptions about what was going on that day, and they made their decision to attack Ahmaud Arbery in their driveways because he was a black man running down the street. Over the course of this podcast, we have remarked frequently about the prosecution's apparent reticence to make this case about racial animus. However, in that one sentence, Dundekowski makes it very clear. The state's theory is that the defendants' actions, their assumptions and driveway decisions that led them to commit these crimes against Ahmaud Arbery were driven by race. Prosecutor Dunikowski continues. So here's what we've got. The bottom line. They assumed he must have committed some crime that day because he's running real fast down the street, right? They did not call 911. They wanted to stop him and question him before they called 911. How do we know? 
because that's what they told the police that night. That's what they said on the scene. Hey, stop, we want to talk to you. Can't do that. They made these decisions in their driveways. So what's really going on here? You know what's really going on here. Mr. Aubrey was under attack. They committed four felonies against him. And those are the four felonies in the indictment. Then they shot and killed him, not because he was a threat to them, but because he wouldn't stop and talk to them. And they were going to make him, absolutely make him stop. We're going to point a shotgun at you. That'll make you stop. That should make you stop right here in your tracks because we want to talk to you. And what did he do? He still ran away. Still ran away. For five minutes, ran away. Travis McMichael went to intercept him with that shotgun, and he turned that corner. We can't see whether Mr. Arbery attacked him or grabbed the shotgun or anything. It doesn't matter. Because how fast did he shoot him? How fast did he just pull that trigger? They shot and killed Maude Arbery. They all acted as a party to the crime. You'll note they've been indicted that way. Now I'm going to talk about what party to a crime is so that you understand that concept. But the bottom line is, but for their actions, but for their decisions, but for their choices, Ahmaud Arbery would be alive. Before getting into our arguments regarding how the law should be applied to the facts in the case, Prosecutor Dunikowski is offering the jury a common sense narrative. What's really going on here, she says. Mr. Arbery was under attack. They shot and killed him because he wouldn't stop and talk to them. Donikowski then goes on to anticipate what the defense argument will be. As she does, she shows the jury a PowerPoint presentation on the court's TV monitors. So what is the defense? I mean, I'm just going to take it right down there. We talked about that. What is the defense? We got self-defense. What is that? Well, they're going to try and convince you that Ahmaud Arbery was the attacker, that um, he was somehow threatening to them, three-on-one, two pickup trucks, two guns. Mr. Arbery, nothing in his pockets. Not a cell phone, not a gun, not even an ID. They want you to believe that he is the danger to them. And Mr. Rubin said it in the opening statement. He was scary. So here's the thing. They're going to try to claim that they were justified in their actions. Okay? Because here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot claim self-defense under certain circumstances. You can't. You don't get to say I was acting in self-defense, and there's three of them, and it's the law. This isn't just something made up. There's three of them in the law, okay? If you are the initial unjustified aggressor, you don't get to claim self-defense. If you're committing a felony against somebody, you don't get to claim self-defense. The blue card with white letters on the TV monitor reads, quote, a defendant can't claim self-defense if he is the initial unjustified aggressor or if he is committing a felony against another person. Donikowski continues. And the third one is if you provoke somebody so that they defend themselves against you, and then you go, oh, look, he attacked me first. But you really were the one who was provoking the attack on yourself. You don't get to claim self-defense. And that's the law. Dunikowski next anticipates the argument underlying the defense team's self-defense claims. They're going to try and claim they were justified in committing all these felonies against Mr. Arbery. How? 
because they're going to try and convince you that this was a citizen's arrest. That's what they're going to do. But here is what a citizen's arrest really is. Okay, This is what the law says. This is the statute, and the judge is going to give it to you. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence. The card on the screen reads, quote, a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge, end quote. And on February 23rd, 2020, none of the defendants knew that he had been inside in broad daylight, that location, and what did he do on the 23rd of February? Did the same thing he always did, wandered around, wandered around, and then left and ran off down the street. But they didn't know that. They had no immediate knowledge of that. It wasn't in their presence. Travis McFike was on the couch. Mr. Bryan's in front of his house. Greg McMichael, you saw, he can't even see down the road. There's that trailer there. Remember the drone video? Citizen's arrest. This was not a citizen's arrest. Not present when any crime was committed. The suggestion that Ahmad committed a crime is based on what? Not immediate knowledge, speculation. Speculation, how do we know? Because of the defendant's own words to the police, that's how we know. The next card underscores the prosecution's argument that the defendants knew they did not have probable cause to detain Mr. Arbery, emphasizing their uncertainty and lack of immediate knowledge about what, if anything, Ahmad Arbery had done that day. Wanting to question Ahmad demonstrates uncertainty. Hey, where are you coming from? They don't know where he's coming from. What are you doing? They don't know what he's doing. Remember, Mr. Bryan? Heard, what'd you steal? Okay, they don't know what he's done. They don't know why he's out there running. They don't have immediate knowledge. They have no knowledge. They have speculation because he's running down the street. Wanting to question Ahmad demonstrates a lack of immediate knowledge, which is required, required under the citizen's arrest law. Because it's required, that means this was not a lawful citizen's arrest. The next card has Greg McMichael's actual words to the police, demonstrating his uncertainty about Mr. Arbery's actions. Remember what Greg McMichael said? Did this guy break into this house today? I don't know. But hey, law enforcement officers, I'm sure he must have committed some crime today, so why don't you go out and figure out what crime it was that he must have committed today? Why do they think he must have committed something? Because he's running down the street. He might have gone into somebody's house. Pure speculation. And after he's lying there dead, Greg McMichael's there telling the police, hey, why don't you investigate? So I'm sure he committed some crime today. That's not a citizen's arrest. Not legitimate at all. Because no one anywhere at any time ever mentioned Larry English's boat. Never on February 23rd, 2020. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After Judge Walmsley overrules a defense objection regarding to Dunikowski's characterization of the citizen's arrest law, the prosecutor wraps up this section of her argument. All right, so simply put, ladies and gentlemen, if you determine that this was not a citizen's arrest, this was not legitimate, he had no probable cause, you can't do this based on the law, then guess what? They're not justified in killing him. They're not justified in any of the felonies they committed against him. Prosecutor Dunikowski next goes through some basic duties of the jury including the duty to apply the laws to the facts as they find them, and the duty to follow the law and the duty to deliberate. She presents a card defining reasonable doubt as the doubt of a fair-minded and impartial juror honestly seeking the truth. The card points out that the standard is not, quote, seeking doubt, end quote, nor is it, quote, beyond all doubt to a mathematical certainty, end quote. Donikowski next explores how the jurors should approach the evidence in the case and spends a good bit of her time in this section on offering her perspective on the credibility of the defense witnesses in the case. So let's talk about some of the defense witnesses. Annabelle Beasley, what did she do when she got off the stand? She walked over here and waved at them as she walked off the stand. I mean, I know you all saw that, right? Okay, so Annabelle Beasley, Dean McMichael, Subi Lawrence, who is she? Boy, Team McMichael, even after this, I mean, after the shooting, she and Brooke Perez and Diego Perez, they're going out in the boat with Greg and Lee McMichael. They're still hanging out with them. Okay, Team McMichael, Brooke Perez, Team McMichael, up until February 11th. And then what did she tell you? Her husband, Diego Perez, had had it with this, had had it with Larry English, not calling the police, had had it with helping out Larry English. He wasn't going to do it anymore because this was not cool. Why was it not cool? Because Diego Perez went inside that house with his flashlight and Greg McMichael came up and went in the house. What was Brooke doing? My husband's in there, my husband's in there. All right, well, Greg McMichael had his gun. Travis McMichael told you that. He had his gun, Diego had his gun, Brooke had her gun. You know, everybody had a gun. Everybody in this case had a gun, except Maude Arbery. And so what almost happened? I mean, come on, let's get real. It's a miracle Diego Perez and Greg McMichael didn't kill each other inside that house, right? Pulling guns out. And that was it. What did Brooke tell you? No more. Not doing this anymore. As we mentioned in our previous episode covering the testimony of Brooke Perez, Prosecutor Dunikowski elicited a concession from Perez that she and her husband were exasperated with the way that Larry English was using them in lieu of the police. Ms. Perez's tone was more agitated and less principled than her expression of neighborly duty and trust during Bob Rubin's questioning. Prosecutor Dunikowski is using this shift in Perez's tone and attitude to counter the defense argument that the McMichaels were part of a community bound by mutual protection. Brooke Perez's testimony gave the prosecution evidence that the fear permeating the neighborhood was actually making the residents dangerous to one another. Dunikowski also assesses the credibility of the defendants as witnesses, both in their statements before the trial and in Travis McMichael's testimony at trial. All right, so did Travis McMichael have a motive to lie to you? 
Did he have a motive to make up additional things that he had never said before? Did he have a motive to embellish his testimony? Did he have a motive to claim he now was confused on February 23rd, 2020? Isn't that convenient? Wow, it was the most traumatic. Yeah, and I don't dispute that it was probably the most traumatic experience of his life. How did Mr. Arbery's day go for him? All right? Most traumatic experience for Travis St. Michael. So he's all confused, but did manage to write out a three-page statement and immediately put down, on January 1st, my gun was stolen. Had all sorts of contextual details in that statement. Did he have a motive to use talking points? Okay? Well, ladies and gentlemen, did he come up here? How many times did he say totality of the circumstances to you? Did he have his talking points down a year and nine months later? That's for you to decide. Dunikowski next moves on to her assessment of Travis McMichael's testimony regarding his training as a Coast Guard officer. In speaking about McMichael's testimony regarding the Coast Guard's use of force continuum, she presents a card with a large yellow star on it. The card reads, quote, Deadly force is the last resort, and the word resort is all in caps. Never point a gun at someone you do not intend to shoot, end quote. Deadly force is the last resort. Never point a gun at someone you do not intend to shoot. So when you start pointing a shotgun directly at somebody, what's your intention? The natural and necessary consequence of the act. You're gonna kill this person. You're pointing it at them. The defendant's not gonna be presumed to have acted with criminal intent, but you may find intention or the absence of, of intention upon consideration of their words, their conduct, what did they do out there? Their demeanor, their motive, and other circumstances. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us in our next episode as we continue our coverage of Prosecutor Linda Donikowski's closing statement with her presentation to the jury of each of the charges against the defendants. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.